Thank you, Stevie. I'm Tavis Smiley, and glad to have you tuned into our program today. Now that we're back from the Thanksgiving break, the holiday season in full effect. And hope you had a joyful Thanksgiving break. Uh, but the show must go on as we push toward the, uh, the Christmas holiday. Um, God works in mysterious ways. <laughs> and after, after being around all these years doing what I do, I just learned to roll with it. Uh, I have another guest scheduled uh, in this half hour. Where that guest is, I do not know. Um, his name is Gotham Chopra. He's the son of Deepak Chopra. Uh, and uh, in, uh, ask us to have him on the program to talk about his new book. It's actually a fascinating book. Uh, it's called The Religion of Sports, Navigating the Trials of Life Through the Games We Love. He talks to a lot of people, a lot of great advice in this book from Serena Williams and LeBron James and Tom Brady, even the late, great Kobe Bryant. A lot of great uh, advice in this book about navigating life. Uh, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's always uh, uh, the case to me that you can learn a great deal from, 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 from amazing athletes. Uh, there's so much about being uh, excellent uh, in athletic pursuits uh, that is applicable to the lives that we live every single day. So I looked forward to that conversation with uh, Gotham, but that is not to happen uh, today. But uh, Evan Raymond is still here. I asked him to stick around because it just gives us another half hour to promote his book and to talk about issues that I couldn't do justice to in a half hour anyway. Uh, his book is called An Inconvenient Cop, My Fight to Change Policing in America. And trust me, I've always got questions about policing in this country, always questions, particularly for African-Americans who choose to go in that profession. Um, and so let me just continue the conversation. Evan, thank you for sticking around. Absolutely. Uh, giving us more time to talk about your book, which is, uh, which is again, uh, uh, I think a must read, particularly for those of us who who care about policing in this country. Let me just let me just start this part of our conversation with this we i'm talking not about black folk uh we are not at all reticent we are not at all shy about calling out bad behavior in police departments all across the country since george floyd for that matter prior to george floyd we will do that and yet when black cops in particular do in fact find the courage and the conviction the commitment and the character to speak out about what's going on the inside, we don't seem as a community to rally around them in whistleblower status the way we do when we will go after a rogue police department. Now, I'm not naive about the ways in which this sort of plays itself out, but as one who has been and is a whistleblower for seven years now, how do you perceive that that dichotomy? We'll call out the department, but don't rally around the cop, as it were. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Uh, And, you know, it's a real limbo to be in. And I remember, you know, in 2015, when I was working prior to the New York Times article that really put my story out there, Mm -hmm. I was trying to get community support uh, by reaching out to different activist groups. And they 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 just had a real tough time digesting the idea of the officer being the activist. Mm -hmm. Uh, But thankfully, you know, then uh, Justice League NYC. Uh, the Gathering for Justice, Tamika Mallory, Linda Sassor, Carmen Perez, uh, shout out to Angelo Pinto. Mm-hmm. Um, they took a chance, you know, and, and that's part of the reason why I wasn't steamrolled when when I blew the whistle. Mm-hmm. Because when no one is behind these officers, there's a reason why they disappear. Like, And what I mean, like, some of them actually disappear, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But, but most of them, they kind of just go back to life before many of them quit the police department they find reasons to fire them because the retaliation it jumps exponentially you know once you blow the whistle and they realize there's no support i think people overall just cannot grab grapple with the idea with that officers are justice-minded and can see the issue for what it is because the oversimplified perception is if you can see that this thing has issues 
and yet you choose to join it, then you're just part of the problem. I could have begun our conversation with this question, but we'll probe it when we come forward. Um, and that is, um, I asked you earlier why one who's had run-ins with the cops would want to be a cop, and you answered that in your own way, in your own words, obviously. When we come forward, I want to ask how one goes about making the decision to be a whistleblower, to come out publicly against NYPD, and you have melanin in your skin, so you know yeah. you know how this is going to end up. Yeah. And yet one chooses to be a whistleblower against a powerful institution like NYPD. Why, how does one go about making that decision? We'll talk about that when we come forward. His book is called An Inconvenient Cop, My Fight to Change Policing in America. He is Edwin Raymond, and you're listening to him right now on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Helping to Helping make, to make you, you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. It is one thing, Evan Raymond, for a black man who's had running with the cops to decide he wants to be a cop anyway, to go on the inside and understand what this is about and perhaps figure out a way to change it for the better. You know what you've been subjected to, and so I take your point. Let's go on the inside uh, and see if I can do something to make policing better for young boys, who will, black boys, who will come behind me uh, and hopefully won't have to experience what I have had to experience in my life. And then you get on the inside and you realize it's worse than you thought and you realize that from the inside you cannot change it. So you decide then to become a whistleblower and to go outside put another way, to go public. How does one make that decision to become a whistleblower against a powerful entity called NYPD? Uh, I mean, great question, because as you said, the original objective was to join, analyze, uh, rise through the ranks, ascend to a position of leadership where I can then, you know, make some changes, Mm -hmm. assuming that I might be embraced because I'm part of the blue, if you will. Um, but then I realized that that's just not how the system operates, mm-hmm. right? It, it uh, immediately attacked me and tried to take my head off. Um, so that's what forced me to have to do it in in the, by becoming a whistleblower. When you, when you, when you, let me jump in. When you say it, it immediately attacked you, unpack that for me. So first I spoke out internally, right? I would speak to colleagues, peers on the same rank. And, you, like, and, you, and you're speaking out about what? Just just this, this numbers game, mm-hmm. uh, the, the type of decisions it's causing officers to make in terms of who gets arrested, how often people get arrested, uh, where they're getting arrested. Um, and I realized a lot of my colleagues, they did not want to think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, they just, it's a, one of the analogies I use in the book is an assembly line where everyone is just doing their repetitive task, but they don't see the bigger picture of what they're contributing to, right? The Model T Ford, we know we're building mm-hmm. a car. But imagine your job is to just keep putting on the wheels or, or, or the windshield, but you have no idea what you're contributing to. That's essentially how cops operate. And, and, and why do they not want to think about it? Because they're conscious. Like, uh, they, yeah, if they, give, if they actually give thought to what they're doing, mm-hmm. what they'll do is they'll rationalize and say, well, I'm not making it up. He did bite into a jelly donut, and the jelly did hit the floor. Technically, he did litter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, uh, that's, a real situ- that's a real situation, <laughs> by know, the way. I know, I know. You know? It's sad, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. Th- that's how overly technical you have to get in order to find a reason and run someone's name to either write them a summons or ish, or or arrest them if they have some something in their past like a warrant that uh, that um you know that causes them to need to be arrested um so from speaking out internally and just getting all the pushback from first from colleagues and then supervisors a lot of retaliation mm-hmm. i was essentially at the point where i had to speak out but it wasn't an easy decision i it's something that i i you know i write about it but it's still 
very difficult for me to fully understand. I, I literally woke up one day and, and I just accepted that if I have to die for this, it is what it is. That, that That's how deep it had to get. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not easy to talk about, man. Like, was what, what, what was there was there a proverbial straw that broke the camel's back as they say i mean a good friend of mine jim saint germain you know we'd speak a lot about policing and he's just like i don't know how you do that job you know we had so many conversations we'd go to the gym together he'd come over you know we'd, we spent a lot of time his good friend spent a lot of time together and and he was just like, how do you, how do you not say something? And I kept telling him, you can't just say something. Like I, I can lose my career. I was, you know, my mother died when I was three years old. My father um, didn't speak English. You know, he's born in Haiti. Uh, we, my brother and I, we struggled. I have a brother 18 months older. We, we struggled. You know, we, we, we starved every weekend because there was no school lunch. We had to wait. Friday would eat. And we have to wait for Monday to eat again. Like this was my childhood. Mm. And here I am now, 22 years old in a career where if I ever become a father, my kids will never have to know that level of poverty. And here I am playing with that, you know, in the name of what's greater, what's good for other people. It's not an easy decision to arrive to. But like I said, I woke up one day and it it was the most liberating and freeing feeling ever. I said, if I have to die for this, I'm at peace. And it was it was just move, it was on mm-hmm. from there. I'm 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 fascinated. This is getting interesting for me now. Um, you are a, a member of a family, of course, a Haitian immigrant family. Correct. Um, I've been to Haiti many times. Beautiful yeah. country. Love the country. Love the art. As a matter of fact, you walk on this building, you'll see yeah. some art I've collected uh, on the walls in this building from Haiti. I love collecting art around the world. Yeah. Some great Haitian art in this building. Yeah. Um, that said, um, I know um, how many, not all, but many of the people in Haiti don't trust the police state as it were mm-hmm. the military in haiti um and that's another conversation for another time but i'm only raising it because to be a part of an uh, of, a, of a haitian immigrant family that even colors or complicates the story more that you decide to go into law enforcement yeah. does that make sense uh, it does but believe yeah. it or not my dad was the first to make the suggestion i thought he was crazy oh your dad made the yeah, suggestion. yeah 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 that's even, that, well, that's even crazier yeah i know he yeah. I, and and you know unfortunately Short, maybe like less than a year after he caught a stroke, never recovered, and he yeah. passed away eight years uh, later. It was my senior year of high school, and um, I, I, you know, I wish I could ask him where did that come from. Yeah, but you, that, you, you understand my my question. Oh, absolutely. Then. For 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 oh. a guy like your father to come out of that. Yeah, I know. You know Baby yeah. Doc yeah. and yeah. the yeah. Duval. Yeah, I mean, you know, where I'm going with about, this. I write about all this. I story. know. Yeah. I mean, I'm just I'm surprised your father suggested. Yeah. It. Why, why do you think? He, you have any idea? Uh, maybe because he saw, you know, the financial benefits yeah. and, the, you know, the perks and yeah. and the benefits and just saw it as a good career. And he know, like he raised me to be very righteous. Like he raised, he knew that I wouldn't go along with those things. I, I yeah. didn't think he knew he was raising a, a revolutionary, but yeah. but he he knew that I wouldn't go along with with anything negative. Because again, people still think police are quite autonomous. Right. And he knew with autonomy, I would never choose those to yeah. do those certain things that we know police do. Uh, I suspect if I ask a thousand black cops this question, I might get a thousand different answers. Um, I'm okay with that, but I'm talking to one particular black cop now, uh, certainly former NYPD officer, Eben Raymond. So let me ask you the question because you wrote the book, An Inconvenient Cop. Um, So let me just ask you this. What did you learn on the inside of NYPD about where black cops draw that line, how they navigate this this tightrope of black versus blue? 
Yeah, and and I see. When I ask that because I'm laughing because you got you are black and you're wearing a blue suit right now. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just kind of kind of tickled by that. Yeah. I, and literally, I looked at your outfit. It yeah. made me want to ask that question. So, <laughs> I, I, what did you learn about? And again, yeah. again, a thousand black cops, you get a thousand different answers. Yeah, but give me your answer. What what did you see? So it's it's three main things I saw, right? And the bulk of it was people were indifferent. They were hyper focused on their own issues. This is the job. They do their job. They sign in, sign out, get a little overtime here and there, and they go about their business, mm-hmm. right, in their personal lives, despite the larger implications of what being a police officer means and, and what we're doing to people. Mm-hmm. And then there are those who lean into it. Mm-hmm. They, the fact that we get Tyree Nichols. I'm about to ask right? you that. Wait, what, what, I'm about to ask you. Let me just shut yeah. up, but I'll ask you quickly, and then sure. I'll shut up. Sure. Finish your answer, but tell me what you saw yeah. when you saw what happened in Minnesota. Absolutely. Okay. But the fact that we get Tyree Nichols, where everyone involved was black, right, after George Floyd, mm-hmm. that's an example of people leaning into it, mm-hmm. right? They, they're they not questioning it at all. They, they, they're they actually accepting the system for what it is. Um, sometimes they don't see the, the larger detriments. They, they essentially, the people that don't understand us who have created the system, they essentially start to have those perspectives. Uh, you know, I know there are people in the NYPD, black folks from the hood that refer to parts of Brownsville, like things I, don't, I can't even repeat mm-hmm, on the air. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wait, you're from Brownsville. Yeah. Just because you quote unquote made it out, this is how you see the, the area that mm-hmm, you're from. Mm-hmm. And then the third, the, 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 you know, the iota, the minority, are those like me, right? Those that not only see the issue, but they're ready to do something about it. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately, we're the minority, uh, the super minority. But that's how I see the breakdown of how black cops navigate the re- the reality of being a cop um, with everything that policing mm. means, both both historically and contemporarily. This, this amazing book from Viking, notwithstanding, the amazing documentary, Crime and Punishment, on Hulu, notwithstanding, um, you said earlier you woke up one day and you just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. And if I have to die, I die. But That's I got I to speak my truth. And you decided to make that decision to be a whistleblower. And all hell sort of broke loose in your life in New York. We all saw that huge story in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. It pushed your story out. And the rest, as they say, is history. Um, but again, the, the great doc notwithstanding, the, the beautiful book out now telling your story notwithstanding, do you ever wake up in the morning and have regrets about being a whistleblower, deciding to be one seven years ago? Yeah, wow. That's a... Um... I don't think I've ever been asked that. Man. Mm-hmm. Um, this journey takes, it greatly affects your personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the part that people don't see. Um, I have a beautiful niece. She's six years old. But I can't say I have six years of memories with her. Mm-hmm. You you get you get almost tunnel visioned in it when you're on a, on a mission like this. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it greatly affects your personal life. So... Are there some things I would pro- probably do differently? Sure. Um, but then again, it's like, in, in taking it back to Haiti, we have a saying, uh, with many hands, the load is light. Mm-hmm. There are not enough hands yet. So those who are willing to put their hands out have to carry that that larger, heavier burden. And I'm not going to say unfortunately, because I know the mission is worth it, but that's where I'm at now. So part of what I hope this book becomes is a tool to get more hands in there. So that the load can be lighter. And what if I told you just by the sheer nature of the conundrum, there will never be enough hands in this fight? Let's try to get more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Might not be enough, but we could probably do more. Yeah. You know, you just said it. Courage mm-hmm. is contagious. Oh, it is. Yeah. It can be. Um, 
I mentioned earlier that I, 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 we're not going to discuss Eric Adams' current situation. He's, yeah. been, he's been a guest on this program. Yeah. I know Eric Adams. I consider him a friend, yeah. uh, the mayor of New York City. Um, but how did you, as a black cop, as a whistleblower, how did you view um, his successful candidacy, his ascent to becoming the mayor of New York City, having been for many, many years yeah. a member of NYPD? Yeah, so, I, you know, and Eric has been a mentor in the past. And I remember, again, I used to have to translate the news for my dad, and I remember it was 97, the summer of 97, the Abner Louima situation had just occurred mm. um, in the, in our neighborhood. Who was Haitian, of course. Yes, in Flapper. Yeah. So yeah. the entire community was talking about it, and I remember, I believe that was the first time I saw then, I think he was either officer or sergeant, and I just couldn't believe that he was an active cop speaking mm -hmm. like that about the Giuliani administration. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it lit a fire in me so that when I joined the police department 11 years later, uh, I would run into him. I would always run up to him, shake his hand and say, listen, I know who you are and I, and I appreciate you. I uh, thank you for inspiring, um, inspiring me to, you know, to, to know that we can stand firm on who we are despite wearing these uniforms. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, he was the state senator in New York. And then he ran and won the Brooklyn uh, Borough President. Mm -hmm. And then he ran for mayor. During that same election, I also ran for city council unsuccessfully. Um, but it's been amazing to watch. Uh, I, I've known Eric over 10 years. We've had many conversations about this stuff. Um, again, you know, we we hope every everything works out for him. Mm -hmm. There are many things that I am seeing now when it comes to public safety and civil rights that it's not making sense, but you know I'm not in the room, so I have to give him grace there. There, there are there are those in New York City. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, uh, yeah. and I'm gonna come back to Abner Louima in just a second. Sure. There are many people in New York now who voted for him. They thought he was the best choice then, yeah. but they're getting concerned about the blue coming out of him, yeah. oozing out of him more and more every day. Yeah. Well, see, it's shocking to me because that I've never seen that blue side of him. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we both wore the uniform, but based on the conversations that we've had. You know, he he understood and respected his position as law enforcement, but he also saw the detriments. He joined because of those detriments, mm -hmm. similar to me. Um, so, again, some of the decisions that are being made, I don't know if it's his personal decisions, they're just not aligning yeah. with the man that I know. How old were you when the Abner Louima thing happened? I was 11 years you old. You were 11. You, rem yeah. you remember it, though? I remember it very well, So yes. give, me a, give me a sense. I don't know. Like you mentioned earlier that I, you'd never been asked a question that yeah. I just asked you. Yeah. I've never asked this question of anyone I'm about to ask. Um, I, I say of anyone, anyone who is Haitian. How do you recall at 11 years old what your father, what the Haitian community in New York felt about Abner Louima? For those who remember the name, this is where the, where the plunger yeah. uh, was sadly yeah. used up his rectum. rectum. Yeah. Just a horrible story uh, uh, that happened to Abner Louima. But how was, how did, how did, how, what do you recall about how you felt as a Haitian when yeah. they did that to Abner Louima? Well, I'll tell you, you know, that morning I went to the store for my dad and every street corner, that's what guys were talking about. And my, oh, I have an older brother named Abner. So, mm -hmm. Oh, his name is Abner? Yeah, my older brother. Yeah. So every time I heard Abner, it got yeah. my attention because yeah. I have a brother named Abner. Yeah. And then when I got home and it was time to translate, uh, you know, at 11 at the time, I didn't I, I didn't know, I didn't even know what sodomy was. Mm -hmm. I, like, I got stuck on the word. But due to the context, my dad figured out what, I, what was being said and he was shocked. Yeah. Like, wait, what? Yeah. And that's when that was when my dad finally had to talk with me, you know, the black the black man talk, yeah. you know, and um, but the community, you know, they they took to the streets. Something that we yeah. do easily now, yeah. you know, it wasn't it wasn't too popular back then. They took to the streets. It was probably the first time I had seen a protest, um, you know, live. And uh, you know, my my dad listened to a lot of Haitian radio. This thing made it all throughout the Haitian diaspora, mm -hmm. from Canada to Paris to Port-au-Prince. Um, it, 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 
it and then my dad was in he was a pan-africanist so mm-hmm. he explained to me why these things happen no matter where we're from no mm-hmm. matter how we present ourselves yeah the longer we talk the more <laughs> i'm out of time now yeah. the longer we talk the more i'm now starting i think to figure out why your dad wants you to be a cop talk to me that abner Louima thing mm-hmm. he, never thought about that. you see this i never thought about you that. see this yeah. that hit your daddy man yeah. oh, he, could, yeah. he couldn't process that no, that was that how was... could nypd yeah treat a Haitian mm. this way. Wow. So maybe the answer is wow. send my boy on the inside yeah. as wow. a Haitian. Wow. And you go fix this. So oh, this man. never happens to another Haitian ever again. Wow. 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 I could be totally off man. I'm I gotta... just I, I I'm just I'm just saying. Yeah. I, cause I'm I was trying to figure out from whence he came yeah. why he recommend you be a cop in the first place. Mm-hmm. But it starts to make a little more sense. Wow. I, I gotta really give that some thought. I'm gonna yeah. speak to my brothers about that one. Yeah. Speak to ask Abner yeah, about that. <laughs> <laughs> the book is called An Inconvenient Cop, My Fight to Change Policing in America. His name is Edwin Raymond again if you're in the Southern California area area. Uh tomorrow night. Uh, he's at Malik Books for a, a lecture and signing at seven PM at the Westfield location tomorrow night. Uh, at Malik's 7 o'clock Westfield location. Um, the book is from Viking. It's available everywhere books are sold. I didn't do justice to it. Cannot, even in an hour conversation, uh, as it turned out, to all this in this book. But uh, I celebrate these black brothers and sisters who decide in various industries to be whistleblowers themselves. Being a whistleblower ain't easy for anybody. But especially if you are black, it ain't easy. And uh, we celebrate your courage, your conviction, your character. And I thank you once again for this extra time. Thanks a lot. Good to have you on. All right. So uh, we do have uh, Gotham Chopper. We'll talk about that book when we come forward on Tavis Smile. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. May Fresh Daily in the Mert Park. Los Angeles, California. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. And we're glad about it. Things got turned around a bit on today's program, but uh, the turnaround allowed us to spend uh, some good time with Edwin Raymond discussing his book, An Inconvenient Cop, My Fight to Change Policing in America. I thank him once again for his work, his witness, his courage and conviction and commitment to raising these issues as a whistleblower for the last seven years out of NYPD. Uh, and so I'm grateful that we had more time with him. I'm also grateful that we still get a chance to talk to uh, to, to Gotham Chopra, who joins us now. Uh, I think there was a mistake somewhere in uh, the time that happens from time to time, but he's here. Uh, he's the son of Deepak Chopra, who I've interviewed many times and consider a friend. Uh, and uh, so uh, Gotham is the son of Deepak. And he spoke with many of the greatest athletes in the world for his new book, Religion of Sports, Navigating the Trials of Life Through the Games We Love. The book is full of great stories from Serena Williams, Tom Brady, LeBron James, Simone Biles, Steph Curry, the late, great Kobe Bryant, even, and more. About unlocking the secrets of competition and of life, we'll go inside the book right now that we're joined by Gotham Chopra on Tavis Smiley. Gotham, how are you today, sir? I'm great. I'm so glad to be here. I'm sorry about the mix-up in the time, but I guess it would be too cliched as the son of Deepak Chopra to say time is just a concept. So, <laughs> you, know. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know what? You know what? <laughs> I, I ain't mad at your dad, and I ain't mad at you for quoting your dad. And, and speaking of your dad, when you talk to him again, please tell him I said hello. Give him my love and my best. Uh, do that for me when you, uh, when you next speak to your father. That said, uh, you're part of a grand legacy, and uh, you've written a, a quite, quite, uh, quite a lovely book. And I want to spend the few moments that we have sort of going inside of it. Let me start with a couple of big questions, uh, broad questions, Gotham, and then we'll, we'll go right inside the book yeah um for you uh, this this phrase it jumped out at me of course religion of sports as a title subtitle of course navigating the trials of life through the games we love we'll get to that but religion of sports tell me about that unpack that title for me yeah you know well so we've 
You know, I already talked about son of Deepak Chopra. Look, when I was growing up in Boston, Massachusetts, as first-generation American, so the first person in my family ever to be born outside of South Asia, um, you know, sports was an assimilation into a community. It was sort of the process of becoming American. You know, and Boston is certainly not unlike many cities, not just in America, but across the world, where sports is sort of part of the cultural fabric mm-hmm. um, of, of a community, of a place. And, you know, certainly as I was a teenager, my father started to have his own, you know, both personal and professional transformation into the <clears throat> spiritual, you know, the, the spirituality business. Uh, you know, I started to realize, like, everything that um, he talked about in spiritual and wisdom traditions, like, going on in pilgrimages, cathedrals, and mythologies. I mean, all of these things existed in the world of sports. Fenway Park, the old Boston Garden, the mythology of the Celtics, the curse of the Red Sox, you know, at that time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think, like, religion of sports sort of harkens back to that time. But sports is not like religion. Sports, you know, anybody who is a diehard sports fan, you know, we call ourselves the faithful. Mm-hmm. We call ourselves true believers. Um, you know, it's not like religion. It is religion. It is, you know, it is real. And I, I would say it's actually, my opinion, better than, you know, institutional religion because sports just requires presence. If you go enough times, you eventually, and I did, you know, as a Red Sox fan, witness miracles and, you know, mm. um, things come true. So mm. that's kind of the origins of the book. The book is actually, I have a company named The Religion of Sports. Mm-hmm. Um really sort of become my vocation, um, which is, you know, another spiritual term. Um, which is appropriate here. Speaking of spiritual terms, um, uh, let, let me let me swing out. So I, I'm going to ask this because I know you can handle it. Um, of course. It, it, is there a price that we pay for worshiping at that altar? We're talking about the religion of sports. Is there a price that we pay in our society for soul worshiping at that altar the way we do in this country? Yeah, well, and, you know, certainly in other countries, it might arguably be worse when mm-hmm. you look at some of the things that happen and, you know, <clears throat> um, in other countries around sports and rivalries. Yeah, there is a dark side. There is a cost. Mm-hmm. There's certainly a danger investing, you know, all our hopes and beliefs in what are ultimately human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, athletes, are you, they may do mythical things and divine-like things, on a court or on a on a you know in a ring or et cetera on a mm-hmm. field, but you know they are human beings. Um, so yeah, there's a cost. There's corruption. The, oh, by the way, all the things that exist in institutional <laughs> religion in the religion of course, scandals and corruption and false prophets and all that sort of stuff. So again, I'd say it just backs up the analogy. But look, I would say you know in totality, yeah. you know when you strip away some of that stuff. You know, what are sports? Sports are about, you know, two things I would say. At, at one, if you're an athlete, it's about reaching your highest potential. Mm-hmm. It's the highest of human potential. That's always what sports has been going back to, you know, mythical times, the Olympics, etc. It's like, can I achieve greatness? Um, and then if you're a fan, you know, which is most of us, myself included, mm-hmm. you know, what is it really? It's about becoming part of something greater than yourself. It's mm-hmm. about believing, buying into a community, um, you know, that's broader and bigger than yourself. And, you know, one of the great things we talk a lot about is, you know, when you go to an athletic event and you're a fan in the stands, mm-hmm. oftentimes, like, you know, you are with people with whom you don't have a lot in common. 
you know, socially, ethnically, racially, religiously, sexually, etc. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, for those two, three hours, you're part of something. You know, you you transcend all those differences. So I would say there's there's something sort of mythical also yep. about just being a fan. So Earl Warren, uh, as I recall, uh, who went on to become Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, um, once wrote, um, and it, it, it still rings in my ears all these years later, once wrote, that when he woke up in the morning, Gotham, he would read the sports pages first because it reminded him of man's accomplishments, man's capacity, man's ability. So he would wake up in the morning and read the sports pages first, essentially because it was a sort of shot in the arm. If you wake up these days and you read the sports pages first <laughs> or you turn on ESPN first, um, there's a lot of negativity. Uh, and to your point, these athletes are human. They're not human and divine. Uh, but because sport is so central to our lives, I wonder whether or not we're being inspired um, to our highest potential in the way that sports used to uh, sort of be that shot in the arm, as it were. Yeah, I mean, look, I think what we're talking about, though, really is, you know, the sign of the times and times change. And, you know, like everything back traces back right now to social media. It depends on what you're looking for. Right. If you're going and, you know, looking for greatness and that sort of inspiration, it's there. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the fact, and that's the thing. We can look no further than this past weekend. We're not looking into ancient history. We're looking at the rivalry games, you know, Ohio State and Michigan, mm-hmm. over 100,000 people, a great game, incredible performances, et cetera. Like, there is that human greatness element um, but there's also, and I'm a big believer in, like, I, I don't believe in that, you know, um, thing that people talk about, like, oh, sports and politics should be separate. And, you know, sports is a sanctuary away from the rest of the world. Not really. Sports, not just now, but historically has always been about, you know, race and politics and sexuality. And sports right now, we have a series coming out we're launching, you know, very soon called The World According to Football, which is basically... You know, you can, any of the world's most existential issues, whether it's climate change or um, equal pay or racism, can be looked through the lens, in this case, of the world's most popular game, which is soccer, mm. right? Like, all of these issues exist in this country. You know, the civil rights movement is intertwined with sports. You know, we have advocates going from, you know, Jim Brown, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, mm-hmm. Billie, Jean, uh, Billie Jean King, etc. I mean, these are pioneers of certain movements in this country, and they were on the front lines of sports. You know, Bill Russell, etc., Muhammad Ali. So, you know, even today, LeBron James, yeah. you know, is, is a huge advocate. So yeah. um, I'm a big believer. Like, you can find whatever you want through the lens yeah. of the language of sports. You mentioned uh, you mentioned Kareem. Ironically, when we come forward, I want to get to some of these great stories uh, in this book from Serena Williams and Tom Brady, LeBron James, Simone Biles, Steph Curry, even Kobe, and some other greats. But he mentioned Kareem. It just so happens I hadn't seen Kareem Kareem in a while. But it just so happens I matter of fact I haven't even had a chance to post the photo yet. But I bumped into Kareem this weekend, and we we spent some time hanging out for a few hours this weekend. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and I did the captain, and what completely blew me away. And I got to post this photo for this particular reason. Kareem was wearing his. UCLA Leatherman's jacket. You know how long ago Kareem played at UCLA and he was still wearing his authentic original Letterman jacket when he played basketball 
at UCLA, and I couldn't help but take a picture with him uh, in that jacket. Uh, There's my Kareem story, since you mentioned Kareem Gotham. Uh, More about the religion of sports, navigating the trials of life through the games we love when we come forward with the author of that book, Gotham Chopra. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Smiley. So, Gotham, I was just showing the photo that I haven't had a chance to post yet of Kareem and I hanging out this weekend with his original um, uh, UCLA Letterman's jacket on. And, of course, the conversation went to, you know how much money that jacket is worth? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Relic. You yeah. Know? yeah. It's, it's a classic. It, it is a relic, man. But I was, <laughs> I, was so, I was just so impressed when I saw it. I said, Captain, man, we got to take a photo with this jacket on, man. So we sat and talked for a while. We had, we had a good time this weekend. Anyway, that, that, that said, um, there's some great stories in this book. The book is called, in case you just tuned in religion of sports by gotham chopra son of deepak uh, the subtitle navigating the trials of life through the games we love what are what is there uh, gotham for us to learn from the stories of these great athletes we could never do what they do in competition but we can be empowered by the stories they tell about how they do what they do tell me more about that yeah. part as we say well yeah you know maybe i'll say it through the filter of, you know, so I'm a father. Um, I have a, well, 16, gosh, uh, 16-year-old son. And, you know, one of the things I, he's an athlete. Um, look, my son is talented, etc. Doesn't matter how many jump shots he takes, he's never going to become Stephen Curry. No matter how many times I take him to the driving range or the tennis court, he's not, not going to become Tiger Woods or Serena Williams. But, you know, the point of why we put our kids, I think, I hope most of us put our kids through sports programs Mm -hmm. is because, not because we think they're going to become, you know, elite professional athletes. It's because of what they learn from being part of a team Mm -hmm. or, you know, in sports, the greatest baseball hitters of all times fail seven out of ten times, right? Like, that's the way it goes. Sports, every time I talk to an elite athlete, and there are tons of anecdotes in this book, you know what they always talk about? They talk about the times they fail, mm. the times they stumble. Mm-hmm. Tom Brady always says, oh, it's not about the seven Super Bowls that I won. It's about the three that I lost. Those are the ones that I learned the most from. If not for the three losses, I wouldn't have won the seven. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that's really like what the book is full of anecdotes because and and what the goal is really, I guess, is to communicate to, you know, the, the layman, the, the true believer, the disciples ourselves, you know, what can we learn from this? What can we take? Um, and, and, you know, what we can take is, you know, stories about resilience, stories about being accountable, stories about being, you know, part of something bigger than yourself. And, of course, also the other thing, you know, you talk to athletes all the time, they talk about what, you know, getting into flow state, being in the zone, and what does that really mean? That's, again, being their be- best version of themselves. And, you know, are there codes, are there cheat codes, are there formulas for how we get there? So, you know, that's really the intention behind the book, is to share some fun stories, but really also to say, you know, how does this apply to me? Yeah. Who's never going to go win Wimbledon or an NBA championship, et cetera. A couple more questions uh, that I want to put to Gotham Chopra when we come for in our remaining moments with him. His book is called Religion of Sports, and we're talking about it right now on Tavis Smiley. From the Merc Park with love, love this love. is Tavis Smiley. Oh. Sounds, Sounds different. different, huh? 
This, this is Tavis Smiley. Before we wrap uh, this conversation, Gotham, I want to give you a chance to say a word about your documentary, um, uh, about your, your new series, I should say, um, that's uh, The World According to Football. We'll talk about that in a moment here. Um, but um, Rick, right quick here, you were talking about your son, and my mind went to a number of stories I've read of late about parents uh, getting increasingly concerned um, about the physical consequences and repercussions their kids are suffering not just in football but other sports as well so on the one hand on the one hand there is this there is this character building on the other hand we're learning more and more about the way this physical engagement uh breaks down these kids bodies your thoughts about that yeah look i'm one of those like we have fallen into this trap you know whether it's au basketball or just intensive specialization um you know with kids uh, uh, in specific sports, again, you know, most of these kids are not going to, you know, reach levels where they're playing in, you know, college or Division A or, or you know, sorry, Division One or, you know, the professional ranks. So, you know, we're just overdoing it. And yeah. I think it's the responsibility of parents to dial it back. I mean, it's certainly something we practice, mm-hmm. um, you know, my wife and I, but that's the thing I would encourage. You know, you just see too much of it. And, you know, what you see when athletes at the highest level, where do they get hurt? Where do they, you know, encounter mental, um, you know, there's a lot of talk now about, you know, mental health and sports. Mm-hmm. It's when they're overworked. Yeah. It's when, you yeah, know, the it. body or the mind is overused. Yep. And so dialing it back is critical. Nope, fair enough. i got about 60 seconds here. Tell me about the world according to football. And I know it's narrated by, uh, is, it, is it Trevor Noah? Is Trevor, Trevor did that one? Yep. Yeah, Trevor yeah, yeah. Noah, yeah, yeah. So from the Daily Show, mm-hmm. you know, one of the really smartest minds, but also most obsessive soccer minds. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's coming out. It's coming out on Paramount Plus. But, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about. It is the most popular, you know, sport on the planet, no matter where you go uh, across the globe, you know, from the smallest pitches in Tibet to the biggest, you know, stadiums in Spain. Mm-hmm. People are obsessed with this sport. But in part, why they're obsessed with this sport is because, Everything that, you know, matters to us can be seen and explained through the lens of this sport. So, you know, we've certainly dealt with it here recently with, you know, equal pay and the struggle around that. Um, But, you know, this is a, a sport that goes back generations and decades. And so it's a really fun series narrated by, you know, one of the most celebrated minds, in my opinion, of, of our culture. Narrated by our friend and brother Trevor Noah. It's called The World According to Football, premiering this Friday on Paramount Plus. Uh, the, the latest project from Gotham Chopra, who also is the author of a new book called Religion of Sports, Navigating the Trials of Life Through the Games We Love. Some great advice in here from some great stories told by Brady and James and Williams and Bryant. Uh, and others. Um, uh, Gotham, good to have you on the program. Again, give my father your best. Uh, Congrats on all your work. Good to have you on the program. I appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Stay strong. Just like that, three hours gone, back here tomorrow to do it all over again. Until then, thanks for listening to the Tavis Smiley program, and as always, keep the faith.